Blog Talk Radio. It is 3 p.m. March 18th, and you, 2017, and you are listening to Journey into Passion with me, Anika S., on Everyday Folks Radio. Welcome to what I always hope to be an inspiration hour of, of also an inspiration and encouragement for all of us as we continue on our journeys towards our passions. Each show, I hope that you will hear something uplifting that will challenge the way you normally do things so that you will take your journey to the next level. Thank you for joining me today as I conclude my series, Celebrating Black History and Love. Today's show is titled Landmark Moment because I will be talking to somebody who will forever be a part of one of the greatest historical moments and landmarks in the history of this country. Dr. Joanne T. Hippolyte is one of the curators of the Cultural Expressions Gallery at the National Museum of of American of African-American History and Culture, which opened its doors on September 24, 2016. She and Michelle Wilkinson helped to bring the Cultural Expressions Gallery to life at the museum. This area also introduces visitors to the broad, this area introduces the visitors to the broad concept of African-American and African culture and the five ways through which the culture is expressed. We will delve into these areas later in the show. But first, it is time to keep you up to date with Everyday Folks Radio. BJ Speaks will not be airing tomorrow, but he will be returning on Sunday, uh, March the 26th at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Billy has been extremely busy as a professor at Broward College, which has recently been named one of the top three colleges in the nation by the Aspen Institute. I'm not surprised because when Dr. Jones asked me to be a speaker for Women's History Month last year, I had a chance to tour and meet some of the students and faculty. Excellence runs all throughout this wonderful institution, so congratulations to everyone at Broward College, and especially to the Broward College Miramar West. Also, make sure that you are keeping up with the ladies of K-pop every other Friday, right here on Everyday Folks Radio. I believe their next show will be on March 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and you can hear yesterday's show by going to the Everyday Folks Radio lineup. To get a list of my upcoming shows for March and April, please go to my blog at anikmadison.com and then go to the category About Me and My Radio Show. You can also visit my Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash passion with anikas. Now, if you have any questions or comments for Joanne or myself, please call 347-539-5372. Once you're connected to the show, just press the number one on your keypad, and I will know that you are ready for a question. And if you're on the call now, you can do the same by just pressing the number one. And you can also send an email to anikepassionjourney at gmail.com. Now, my grateful moment is very simple. I am elated to have the opportunity to speak to someone who has been such a part of a historical moment in our history. I'm truly grateful to have Dr. Joanne Hippolyte with us today, and I'm so glad that she's going to be sharing her, exper- her incredible experiences. So, Dr. Dr. Hippolyte, are you there? Hello, are you with us today? I hope you're here. Let me see if I can get you one more time. Let's see. Okay. Joanne, are you with us? I can't hear you. I hope you're with us today. I I can I've definitely brought you on. I am on. Okay. Can you hear me? Oh, there you are. Excellent. Excellent. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Sorry about that. No, that's not a problem. Not a problem at all. Well, let's just dive right in because we have so much to cover today. And let's begin with an introduction. Now, you have a very interesting background. So tell us where you were born and where you grew up. I was born in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. My parents are I'm of Haitian descent. My parents are Haitian as well. Um, but I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts. My parents moved uh, 
when I was four years old uh, to that part of the United States. And that was where I grew up. Excellent, excellent. Now, in your school, your focus has been Caribbean and African-American studies. In fact, you hold a doctorate in African-American studies from UCLA as well as a BA in English. And so what made you, um, what made you decide on African-American studies? Well, that's a great question. Uh, my doctorate's actually in literature from the University of Miami, but I do have a master's oh, okay. degree in African-American studies from UCLA and an undergraduate degree in African-American studies from the University of Pennsylvania. And um, okay. the neighborhood that I grew up in in Boston was an African-American neighborhood. <clears throat> so we were one of the few Haitian families on our street. And it was a very close-knit African-American neighborhood. Um, we were friends with, an, my, me and my brother and my sister were friends with a number of other uh, um, neighborhood kids. Uh, we were always in and out of each other's houses, spending a lot of time together playing games, spending our entire summer um, hanging around each other. Sometimes we'd go to their churches, eat some of their food. So I early on became pretty fascinated with um, African-American culture and noticed um, because it was so different from the culture that I was experiencing in my own house, which was, you know, Haitian, as I mentioned before, um, noticed the differences between the two, you know, the difference in the type of foods we ate, the type of the way we spoke English, for instance, the way we spoke different languages. And um, the cultural differences, too, in terms of the dance styles. Um, so I was fascinated by those particular differences and grew up with a really strong appreciation for African-American culture my entire life. Um, growing up in a black neighborhood, too, in the middle of a predominantly white city, Boston, Massachusetts, which was going through the busing riots during the 1970s, also made me very much aware of uh, race relations in the United States. Um, <clears throat> and so... Um, when I got to college and the opportunity came to take African-American studies, I took it as a way of sort of understanding race relations in America, uh, which, it, which it more than provided for me, and also, as well as giving me a background in um, a deep historical background and cultural um, background information on African-American um, culture. Later on, I went on to extend uh, my studies to also study Caribbean studies. So it was sort of an interest in African-American culture led me to go back and also think about studying academically uh, the, the culture that I came from as well. Wow. And you continued that on because I see that you were chief curator at the History, Miami, History of Miami Museum from 2008 to 2014. Is that correct? I was, and that was a great place to be, start your museum career at. And what uh, the reason I started working there was I, well, I was in graduate school at the University of Miami. They needed someone to do some research in the Haitian community in Miami for uh, an exhibition they were doing called Caribbean Percussion Traditions. So I got hired to do that, and that's how I got exposed to the museum field. I learned that museums are academic institutions, much like um, universities are. My intention all along when I got the PhD was to teach, to stay in academia. Um, but um, the museum museums taught me there was another way to, um, another place to work in that also um, featured and made central the experiences of <clears throat> academic academic research interests, for instance. For instance. So what, what I loved about museum work in particular and History of Miami was that um, everything that I had been studied and studying in African-American history and culture, I could then also apply in a museum and present it for a general public to come and see, um, to learn about, um, those two areas that fascinated me, African-American history and culture. Wow. Did you ever Caribbean think that studies. all of these, right, did you think, ever think that all of these experiences would take you to the point where you would actually become a part of history, um, being the uh, National uh, Museum of African-American History and Culture? It was definitely a dream come true um, to work at a Smithsonian Museum is, a, as a, is a definitely a boon in, in anyone's um, curatorial career because they are considered some of the best museums in the country. But for this particular museum, this very special museum, which has been 100 years in the making, um, it's definitely very, very special to be part of this experience. Wow. Now, as I mentioned earlier, you and it, it is Michelle Wilkinson that was the other co-curator that worked with you, correct? Well, Michelle Wilkinson and I co-curated another exhibit, uh, one of the another inaugural okay. exhibits. That one is called um, A Hundred Years, A Century in the Making, Building the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Um, the exhibit you mentioned before, Cultural Expressions, that I, co I curated myself. Awesome, awesome. And so... When you when you first heard about, like you said, you were very excited about it, but what were your first thoughts? Like, okay, what, what do I need to do first? What were your first thoughts when you first got this got this job? I came to work for the Smithsonian in 2014, and 
Um, so that's pretty far along in the way in the process in, in, in terms of developing the exhibition. The, the museum was signed into legislation in 2003, you know, by a bipartisan Congress. They started hiring staff in 2005. So I came along in 2014. The exhibitions were actually very much already conceptualized and on the way. And I came in to um, take over and finish cultural expressions um, <clears throat> for many different reasons. Um, so, so in many ways, when I got there, the template for the exhibition was already there. I did get to make um, quite a number of changes to the exhibition itself. In particular, they were looking for a way to bring the diaspora more into um, some of the exhibitions at the museum that they were planning out. And I was able to, uh, in particular in cultural expressions, to create an entire section that's around the African diaspora itself. But let me back up a little bit and tell you a little bit about cultural expressions so you understand what I'm talking yes. about. Yes, cultural yes. Expressions that, was, is, that was my next question. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> cultural Expressions is one of 13 inaugural exhibitions, um, one of 13 exhibitions that visitors encounter when they come into the museum. It's located on the fourth floor, which is where all the culture galleries are located. So on the fourth floor, there are you know these really great shows. There's our visual arts gallery is there. It's called Visual Arts and American Experience. Our musical Crossroads Gallery is there, and that covers, you know, all the genres African Americans have participated in developing in the United States. Musical genres are taking the stage gallery there, and that is about the history of African Americans in theater, film, and in television. And then there's cultural expressions. Cultural expressions allows, you know, explores five different ways in which African Americans and other groups of the African diaspora visibly express culture. And when you think about, you know, ways that you see culture, you definitely see it in the food, right? So cultural expressions that you see mm-hmm. explores the food ways of African Americans and a select group of African diaspora group. It explores style in the form of the way we, the hairstyles, skin color, and fashion stylings over the years. It, it explores language, because language is one of the ways that we express culture. Um, and then it also explains, it also explores dance, social dance in particular, um, gesture. And when, we talk, when we're talking about gesture, we're talking about things like everything from the fist bumps, you know, to the high five, to the side eye stare, the ways in which we silently communicate. Um, and then there is the last section is artistry, craftsmanship, and creativity, which is about um, the things, the cultural products that we create. Wow. Now, how did you, how did you go about getting the items? For this for this particular section, it's, it had to have been had to have been fascinating. It definitely wasn't easy, and it, that um, that transcends all of the thirteen inaugural exhibitions. Um, very few people know that we're the only Smithsonian Museum to have started without a collection. Nothing. Now, normally, wow. when you start a museum, there's a founding collection. Um, some major collector has been collecting in this area already, and is giving gifting you the items to help you know to help you um, to, uh, develop these exhibitions around. So we had nothing, and we had a 360,000 square foot museum to fill, and we had a big story to tell about, about wow. African American history, yes. culture, and communities. And we're really yes. proud to be able to say that now we have over 37,000 objects, and over 50% of those objects were actually donated to us by people. Ordinary yes. individuals, people gave us their fairly family heirlooms that they hung on to for many years, whether that, there's, that was their mother's quilt you know, that she had um, made in the 1940s or 50s, whether it was their great-great-great-grandfather's freedom papers that they had held on to in the family, military records that they had. Um, so we were lucky in that um, the giving, the, the people knew that the museum um, was coming about and uh, looked at what they had <clears throat> and decided that it was a good opportunity to share um, their family's history with us. And, the, and, and coincidentally, the way that family's history also tells a larger story about African-American history and culture. So there was the people who gave to us, and they found us. Sometimes We had a website. We have a website, and there's a forum where people can donate, and so sometimes they found us through that, or sometimes they called, sometimes they sent letters. The other way that we acquired objects was we bought a number of items through um, private collectors. So there are already people who specialize in collecting African-American and Caribbean mem- memorabilia uh, and have built collections over time, and sometimes they, um, we, we bought a collector, we bought items from a collector or bought an entire collection from a collector. We also bought things at auctions, on eBay, um, anywhere that, um, you know, that was actually selling items that reflected the history that we needed to be able to tell. Wow. Now, when you were going through this process, did anything stand out to you as far as what you collected? Did anything just kind of stay in your memory? I think what really stood out was um, what I mentioned a little bit before, how wonderfully willing people were to give us things. 
uh, even things that were meaningful, you know, to them personally and their family, which means we're leaving their family, though. In many ways, I think they think of the museum as um, keeping it within the family. And so uh, in some cases, we actually called and asked for gifts of things. So, for instance, we have a really, one of um, Leah Chase, the queen of Creole cuisine, like um, one of her, you know, chef's jacket, and she wears colorful chef's jacket, she wears red, and she wears pink, and she wears green. She doesn't wear a typical white chef's jacket. Um, the fact that we could just call and say, you know, we're opening up this museum and we want to tell a story about New Orleans cooking and, um, and um, how African-Americans contributed to that, and people immediately said yes, that was um, a sign, I think, of, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, uh, of how important this museum, people felt that this museum was. And, <clears throat> and there were many, many other stories like that. Wow. Let's go to some uh, email questions. And just as a reminder, if you have any questions for Joanne or myself, please call 347-539-5372 and just press 1 on your keypad. Or if you're on the call now and you have a question, just go ahead and press 1 and let me know. Or you can send an email to anikepassionjourney at gmail.com. And the first question comes from Kim in Orlando. And Kim says, our culture has mainly been passed down orally. However, as generations pass, we tell less and less of our history and family history. How do we encourage the, gener- the current generation to keep telling our stories? And the second question is, how do we convince them of the importance of doing so? I feel like there's always someone in the family who's the naturally natural-born history keeper. They're that person who tells stories about, you know, your grandma and what, what she used to do. Uh, or it's that person who listens really well to the stories of other, you know, the, the people in the family and um, passes that history down. They're the ones that build the family, um, you know, maybe they plan the family reunions or they um, build a website that tells the story of their family. There's always someone, I think, who takes that role of history keeper within a family. Uh, it's not everybody who's going to do it because, you know, some people I think are more just more tuned to um to that area of life, I would say, you know, that um, that particular subject matter. And it's really important, I think, to support that person as much as possible to, um, you know, to listen to the resources, to watch the resources they're creating and learn from them and allow them to share as much as possible at family events, whether that's a reunion or a holiday or Thanksgiving, um, to spend some time actually listening to that person because they've done the work of actually um, keeping the history of the family in place. Um, I definitely encourage people to, uh, as much as possible, if they have an opportunity to go to college, to take African-American studies classes. I mean, one of the things you see at our museum is that, I mean, there are plenty, there are lots of educated African-American people, Caribbean descent, everybody, and, um, but they may have gone to university and they may have studied business, you know, they've gone on to become a lawyer or a doctor or anything else, and they never actually took an African-American studies class. So even they're missing, yeah. even our own people are sometimes missing opportunities to learn as much as possible about their own history. Uh, and that's why the museum plays such an important role. We find that people who come to the museum um, often it's their very first experience with African American history, not just um, not just white people, but black people as well, um, encountering all of the different facets of um, the ways in which African Americans have contributed to um, American history in general. And so that's the role. That's the very important role that this museum plays. That education, that education role. Absolutely. Last week I had a show called History Within Your Family, and I spoke to my own mother um, about her the imprints that she made on black history, and it was a fascinating conversation. I even, <laughs> it, uh, ended up learning some things I didn't even know. So I definitely think it's definitely important to learn about the history within your own family, and, and you'll be surprised at what you learn, and you end up learning about yourself, because I ended up learning some things, some reasons why I, did, I do certain things. So it's, it's, it's really important. I totally agree with that. All right, and so let's go with the next one. Um, let's see. Antonio from Fort Lauderdale says, are there certain areas in our country that have more of an African-American influence? That's interesting. I wouldn't want to privilege one area over another. Uh, one of the things we wanted to make sure we did at the museum was to make sure that we diversified our representation of um, the, <clears throat> the culture 
itself. And so whether you are an African-American who grew up on the Texas border and had Mexican influences as a result of that, you know, or, you know, part of the um, Buffalo soldiers who fought in that part of the country and and therefore had mixed influences because of that, or whether you were um, from South Carolina, from the rice fields and the culture there, whether you were in the Northeast, which every African-Americans are different depending on which part of the country they come from. And there were African-Americans almost everywhere, and one example of that in the Cultural Expressions exhibition is we have a display of um, cookbooks, um, and the cookbooks are from a different areas of the United States. And there's one that's uh, called it's from a, um, from 1927, and it's called um, Choice Recipes from the Best Caterers and Cateresses of the State, and um, and it's published by the Negro um, Club Women. It's a Negro Club Club, club Woman who published the book. But the, if you when you look in and you try to figure out when you and you're trying to find out which state they're actually representing, it's actually Montana. So Montana, mm-hmm. back in in the late 19th century, early 20th century, um, these black women are putting together their recipes and um, um, continuing cuisine, contributing to African American cuisine even back then. And we wouldn't want to um, isolate them and say that others are sort of you know are better or more or more um, <clears throat> more important than them. But we will say, I will say that definitely there is a, 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 a tremendous emphasis on the South because there were more African Americans located in the South because of slavery um, prior to the, the Great Migration. And so a number of Southern influences on African American culture you see because of the Great Migration, because of those people moving out of the South and bringing their food traditions and their cultural traditions with them. And um, now you find those traditions all over the United States because of that migration. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, I watched some of the C-SPAN uh, video where you were, um, it's called uh, American Artifacts is the video, and where you were with the museum director, Dr. Mr. Uh, Lonnie Bunch, and other curator, curators giving the hard hat tour. I thought that was uh, quite interesting. And so, um, and if you want to, uh, listeners, if you want to uh, check that out, just go to cspan.com and search for the National Museum of African American History and Culture Hard Hat Tour, and, it, and you'll see it. And, and I'll put that information on my, um, my social media as well. And so what I wanted to ask you is, um, what, was that, what was that initial tour like when you started to see things come together? What was, that, what was going through your mind at that time? It's pretty incredible. We spent all this time... Um, thinking about what this exhibition is going to be about, you know, making sure you're telling the stories right, getting the script, pulling all the resources together, finding the objects all over the country, um, picking images that are going to represent these particular storylines. And you do that, and you need to hand all of that over to these incredible designers and fabricators who are going to put all the, the spaces together to make, you know, to make your vision come true. And so actually being in the building and seeing it coming together um, is is really incredible, actually, and seeing how it looks visually. Because it's like it's the difference between practicing for a play and then actually doing the play, being on the play, the set <laughs> right. completely done and putting it together, or practicing for a, a movie role and then actually seeing the role on screen afterwards. And then the other part of that is now watching people experience the museum, experience the exhibit. We're always crowded and the thing, listening to them commenting on objects and um, appreciating some of the videos that are in, in the space itself and um, saying, you know, I know about that. You know, my family used to do that, or asking questions about things they don't know anything about. It's really um, meaningful. Right. It must have been fascinating to work with Mr. Bunch. Did you, did you enjoy your experience? Yeah, he's amazing. He's a seasoned uh, museum veteran. People... Um, he was with the Smithsonian for a long period of time. He was the director of the um, yeah, the Office of Curatorial Affairs at the National Museum of American History, which is right across the street from us. He was the director of the Chicago History Museum. He was a curator at the California Afro-American Museum. So he's been in the museum field a really long time. And you have to admire his, um, his expertise, his longevity in the field. Not only that, but his vision. I mean, he was the one, he was the first staff person hired in 2005. He was the one making sure that we told these stories in the right way and that we went out to the public and asked um, um, what, it is, what was it they expected to see so that the public's input wasn't included as well. And um, I think it's, it's a testament to him that the museum has been so successful and is receiving such great reviews. Absolutely. Does he feel like his vision has been fully realized? 
I really do, and I think that yeah, he he comments that it has as well in terms of um, that he's humbled by what they've been what we've been able to achieve. Um, it's, and you know, some of that is also um, reflected in the uh, fundraising campaign. And one of his biggest job was to make sure he raised the match to the um, Congress gave us two hundred and fifty million to build a museum. We had to match it um, with another two hundred fifty wow. million. And the success, his success is such that we raised over you know over two hundred and fifty million actually. Wow. Um, and so the, the tremendous amount of work he did talking to everyone from celebrities to scholars to industry leaders and convincing them way before building, we had anything even in the ground yet, you know, that, they, that we needed the funds to help build it. This was an important um, building to be contributing to, an important um, effort um, that took a lot of um, not only stamina, but a lot of imagination, a lot of creativity, a lot of skill. So we all we really do owe it all to him. Awesome. Now you yourself, as a, you, I'm sure you've been able to go through the finish, the Finnish Museum as a, a, a spectator yourself. Did, what was your, what was your initial experience like when you actually saw everything? Well, I'll say that you know it's always different when you're looking at your own stuff. I, I like going through other people's exhibitions, <laughs> even though mine turned out fabulously. Because it's kind of like, you know, when you um, when you make something yourself, you can see the stitches, you know. Um, but it's very yeah. seamless for other people. But I love going through slavery and freedom, seeing how powerful and meaningful the, um, the history galleries are on the bottom floor of the museum and what incredible artifacts they were pulled together and the, the entire experience of people walking through the space. Um, and I love... Um, <clears throat> Even just the, um, the the videos that there are over sixty videos throughout the museum, but all of the multimedia that was pulled together to help um, to help you know as another way of show, showcasing African American history and culture and the voices of the people that come out through those videos, whether it's um, athletes talking about American sports or people in the military talking about um, what it was like, the roles of African Americans in the military. Um, so it's it really is a. Um, I, it's a moving experience. I think that I often find I'm a little bit of a crybaby. I often find that I tear up on certain sections of the um, of the museum. Yeah. And in other places, you know, there are other places that just make you want to groove and dance, like in the musical crossroads mm-hmm. exhibition, <laughs> in the record yeah. store, the musical crossroads exhibition. And then other places that just take you back, you know, because you have memories yeah. of this particular outfit that you know that used to be worn during the 1990s, or you know, right. looking at the curling iron. Looking at the, um, <laughs> the sorry, the, the pressing comb in the cultural expression oh, exhibition, yes. you remember sitting in, yeah, you know, sitting in your mother's kitchen and getting your hair hot combed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh wow! I love the fact that they have they have sections where you can actually experience it for yourself. It's not just one of those you look, you go through, you look around, you look, you look, but you can actually have your own experiences. I love that. I love that idea. That is fantastic. Yeah, and you know we so, have a, a second. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. I just wanted to mention no, no, that the ahead. second floor of the, the second floor of the exhibition is called the Explore More Gallery, and those actually give you interactive um, interactives that you can um, do exactly what you're talking about, experience things for yourself. There's a great interactive that allows you to go um, dive for um, um, treasures, you know, sunken treasure, not treasure, I should say, um, artifacts related to um, a, a slave shipwreck, for instance. And there's another. Um, interactive allows you to learn how to do step dancing, you know, the the type of dancing that's performed by African-American fraternities and sororities. And there's a third interactive that allows you to take a trip through the American South. It's an automobile interactive. But you have to use the green book, you know, during the second, so that in the segregate, so that you know where you can stay and where you can eat if you're taking a a trip during the South during the period of segregation. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just thinking about what you said is is being uh, able to, go through the, the part with the steps. Because I remember, you know, I went to uh, Clark Atlanta University, and that's just one of the things that stands out in your mind when you go to a H- H- HBCU is those those step part, those step contests and you see the, all the different fraternities. That's that's something that definitely sticks out in your mind. So I'm, it's, it's, it's a very interesting experience. So I'm glad that all of that is, is presented there. And so I know that you, um, you spoke about different um, – you, you got emotional – and I, I can definitely understand why you would get emotional. And I'm sure there was some um, just, you know, even though we all know the history, it's still it's heartbreaking when you actually see it. I'm sure during the slavery, during the, the areas of slavery. And and so what, what, what different um, heartbreaking moments kind of stood out to you? 
so there are bills of sale in the slavery and freedom exhibition for children. You know, there are slave shackles that are smaller than the regular size slave shackles because they're made for children. And there is a, um, a crib, a crib used by a slave family. A whole experience of like what that must have meant to raise your children in um, <clears throat> in servitude and in slavery, as enslaved and knowing that you couldn't control what would happen to them. That's um, that's absolutely heartbreaking. Um, there are examples of um, uh, clothing worn by um, people, enslaved people as well. That entire experience is just. Um, is incredible, and it's it's so well told in the Slavery and Freedom Gallery. When, where you, as you're walking through, and you're also start you're learning a, a lot. You're learning about the fact that you know that there was a period of time when there were um, not just enslaved people, but, but also indentured servitude in terms of white people, and also black people were indentured servants as well. But then there, then we transitioned to a period of time in American history where slavery becomes associated with blackness, with race. You know, race race becomes associated with black, with with slavery. So there's a change in turning points. Um, and I think that, you know, there's the um, the dress. This is an incredible artifact. This dress worn by one of the Little Rock Nine. Um, in, um, so she, it's one of the oh, desegregation wow. stories of the school. It's the dress that the parents picked for her to wear to school the day that she's desegregating Central High. And um, it's a beautiful dress. And you can tell the care that they took in picking up the right dress because the dress has... Um, uh, letters in it, like A, Bs, and Cs, you know, and musical notes as well. So the fact that they picked a dress that also reflected education, you know, at the time that they're asking this daughter to make this really, you know, momentous step, you know, for the for the world, for the country, you know, for black, for African Americans, for everyone, um, it, it really makes what is a big story. It humanizes the story um, and brings you into it. <clears throat> makes you makes you feel definitely emotionally about what that must have been like for for her that day. Now, I know that uh, I wanted to make sure that people are, are, uh, got all the information, so you can go to the website at Emma's and Nancy, Emma's and Mary, A-A-H-C dot S as a Sam, I dot E-D-U. That's the, uh, the main website. And um, you can go here to actually get uh, museum passes and, and get more information on the museum itself and um, get all of the highlights and and see how things came together. It's a fascinating uh, website, and it definitely will um, get your juices going. You definitely want to go to this museum. I'm, I can't wait. I'm so excited to go to it. And so when you went to, when you, did you go to the opening, by the way? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. When you were there, did you speak to any dignitaries or historical figures? I left them alone because we want them to have their <laughs> experience as well. <laughs> I, I was that. there with my family. We were allowed to bring some family members with us as well. So we spent that time um, listening to the, the ceremony. And um, there were some yeah. incredible um, speeches and um, <clears throat> tributes to the museum. As you know, President Obama spoke as well as um, former President Bush and um, several celebrities, including Oprah and, and, and Will Smith. But, you know, we have a policy at the museum. Many celebrities pass through the museum all the time, normally for VIP tours at their own designated time, um, to give them their their space and to allow them to, yeah. <laughs> you know, their own privacy, oh, their own way of yeah, experiencing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's definitely, uh, the museum's definitely popular among um, dignitaries and celebrities. Presidents of museums are, and presidents of countries are coming through all the time. Basketball teams are coming through all together, you know. Um, sometimes right. we, we get cast, we get cast, a movie cast for movies that are um, uh, being um, filmed, all of that. And um, I think that that's amazing that um, that we're we're on this must list of um, coming to go see and a tour of places you have to go tour if you're in Washington D.C. at all levels. Yeah. Wow, that is that is incredible. I'm going to go back to an uh, email, and this is coming from Denise from Ocala, Florida, and she writes, "What are ways in which we have preserved our dance, food, and style, if possible, our language?" Well, there are lots of different ways. Um, let's talk about dance. Uh, social dance is featured in the Cultural Expressions Exhibition. One of the ways we preserved it um, <clears throat> is by encouraging it. Um, uh, African-American communities have a tradition of encouraging dance. You know, when you see your, you put the music on when um, 
and you play it at a party or you may play it at home. And when a kid is, you know, moving well to the beat, you encourage it by clapping your hands and saying, yeah, you know, you like, you have a way of verbally <laughs> encouraging it. And that um, encourages them to think about movement in ways as, as something that is valued, right? We encourage it by keeping those traditions in place by um, um, when we have a party, you know, um, in, in creating new dances, um, um, encouraging new dances, um, really sort of valuing people who are very creative in um, in their moves, you know, in particular ways. Um, and we definitely um, also um, do it by sharing um, dance steps with each other. You think about where you learn to dance. Oftentimes it's your sometimes it's your parents teaching you how to dance on the beat, but it's also your right. friends in school, your friends in school, right. your neighborhood, maybe your first boyfriend. So there's, there are ways in which we're um, continuing those traditions in very natural ways within the community itself. And in food, I mean, who doesn't have memories of their mother and their grandmother cooking those big Sunday meals and those traditional meals oh, and yeah. the holidays, you know, the macaroni and cheese and the, uh-huh, whether it's the fried chicken or the collard greens, and these are traditional foods. Oh, yeah. We know that when we're going to have a holiday party or a special event, that those are the foods that are going to be on the table, and we may have memories of our relatives and family and friends cooking on cooking together uh, in the kitchen, uh, preparing these meals, and we may have been with them um, and learning how to do them. So these are ways in which we informally pass um, pass traditions among each other. And then there's definitely ways in which we also learn things formally. Um, um, Af- you know, African-American dance is a great example of that. Um, it's now become, um, um, it's, not, it's now on the stage and performed at all sorts of levels. We have professional dance companies that excel at it. And so we also have schools that teach those traditions as well and academies and um, performing arts or groups and organizations who continue to share that culture, not just, you know, within the within our culture itself, but with to the world, share it with the world. All right, and we have a call, and I'm going to bring the caller on. Caller, are you with us? I certainly am. I've, this is such a very interesting, and this is such a moving uh, show. I have one question as it relates to uh, tours. Do you get a lot of, hopefully you do, the schools wanting to bring the children through, the elementary schools, tours from children. I know I heard you say about the stars and adults, but what about children to schools? Bring their classrooms through this awesome museum that they may learn so the children can understand and really get a, a deeper uh, understanding of their uh, American history. That's a great question, and yes, we do. We're actually in the thick of it right now because it's spring break season. And a lot of um, uh, schools around the country are using their spring breaks to do um, visits to Washington, D.C. So there are school buses lined up around the mall, and the school groups are visiting the museum from high school. We have local D.C. students also coming in school groups. Um, And then we also do outreach. Our education department goes into the schools, um, the local area schools, and teaches about topics like race and talks about the different exhibitions that are on display in the museum itself. So... So those that can't get to us, we're also bringing the information to them. Oh, that's awesome. That's that's very important. Thank you. I was very curious about that. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Excellent question. All right. And so, and if you have a question, you can call 347-539-5372 or send an email to anikepassionjourney at gmail.com. And, of course, if you're on the call, just press that number one, and I will bring you on if you have a comment or a question. And now my next question is, in your experience, because you've had a lot of experience in African-American studies, what are some of the biggest misconceptions when it comes to black history that you think of? That's probably, it depends on what, what part of the history you're talking about. Um, and there, I mean, it's, so um, in, with, I'll go back to cultural expressions, the exhibition again, because uh, we had to think mm-hmm. about stereotypes um, in each of the sections of the gallery. So one stereotype mm-hmm. around food, African-American food, is that it's unhealthy, for instance, um, uh, which, mm-hmm. doesn't, um, which doesn't think, you know, which doesn't uh, really sort of um, think through the entire history of African-Americans um, and their connection to agriculture, their historic connection to agriculture and growing food and farming and gardening and all those things and, the, and those traditions that are in place as well. 
um, and healthy eating. I mean, we um, there was a period of time, like many Americans, where we we ate local, you know, because that was what we did. We 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 grew gardens, we grew food in our yards, we um we lived on farms as well, and so we were very close to this idea that of fresh foods and local foods and um, foods that were organic as well. Um, or there is the uh, tradition that it's all there's a perception that it's all soul food, and that's just not the case. Depending on where you lived in the United States, where you grew up, you may not have been eating what's considered traditional soul food, which comes out of the agricultural South. If you live in the northern states, you might have had a different type of cuisines, or the, the western part of the United States, you may have grown up eating a different type of foods. If you're in New Orleans, you eat Creole cuisine. If you're in the western range, your food may be more influenced with, have more Spanish and Mexican influences with it as well. And we know that that's true because when we look at cookbooks created by African-American cooks and um, chefs that date back to the 19th century, we're seeing a range of cuisine styles, not just traditional soul foods. Um, and so that's why our museum cafe, for instance, is um, structured the way it is. The museum cafe is doing almost as, as you know, as fabulous. The guests got lots of press, like the museum itself. And when you enter that cafe, you're offered an option of what part of the United States you want to eat in, the agricultural south, the Creole coast, the western range, or the northern states. And the idea behind that, and you, you, you taste the cuisines in those sections, the idea behind that was that the fact that African Americans were largely overrepresented in uh, in the um, culinary field, whether that was because you were a cook on a plantation or uh, you cooked in um, uh, a wealthy person's home in the north, or you were on uh, chuck wagons in the um, the urban um, in the in the west, or you were maybe you were a, a porter or a cook on um, in the military or in um, or on um, Fulman porters on trains going across the country. And so they really were contributing to the development of all types of American cuisine. It was their food as well. And so we want to make sure that that historic context is not, um, is, is not is, is something we put in place and not the perception that, that the only type of food that's black is um, soul food in the United States. Wow, that's I'd interesting. Say, so you can actually yeah. get a meal? You can yeah, actually get a, a restaurant. Wow. We have a restaurant. It's a beautiful restaurant in the museum, and uh, people are spending up to six hours at a time in the museum, so they need a break <laughs> to yeah. eat. Right. And they're going into the kitchen right. and really enjoying the, the the food there. You can get shrimp and grits. You can get um, um, empanadas in the Western Range. You can get um, even um, pan-roasted oysters, which is a dish in the northern states, which is a dish that um, – we named after Thomas Downing, who was an African-American man who owned one a fine dining establishment called Tom, Thomas Downing Oyster House in New York City, one of the best restaurants in New York in the 19th century, um, and um, it was heavily, it was a seafood dining establishment. Wow. Wow. That's, oh, wow. That's great. I love that mm-hmm. idea. And so you mentioned that um, you were there with your family during the opening, and what, what kind of experiences did your family um, what what did they tell you? What they what did they say express to you during that time? Oh, my mom loved all the pomp and circumstance that you know the, the of the ceremony <laughs> itself, uh, getting to see all the celebrities and enjoy that. Prior to the actual ceremony, we also had a, a friends and family opening, so which was a really nice thing for the museum to do for us because we many people have been working for years and years on this museum, a lot of long hours, traveling around the world and the country, trying to collect artifacts or. Um, raise money. And so um, the ability to be able to share the museum with our families, you know, gets them since they've been seeing all the hard work that's been going into it, um, was a, a really, and it was a really special night. Um, so they got to preview the museum um, and see it up close and personal before the crowds came. And it can be hard to see things when they're, when it's very, very crowded in the museum itself. Um, and right. I think that they were impressed by um, how big the museum is. It really is big. It's six floors of exhibitions. It's uh, 360,000 square feet, 89,000 square feet of um, exhibitions itself, um, but also by the fact that it's a completely different different experience on every floor that you go to. Um, it's like, that's why people are spending so much time in the museum. Each floor is so incredibly different that there's more and more and more to uncover and more to see. So my son loves running around. He loves the Explore More Gallery because it, it's, a, it's an interactive space. A number of um, youth like that floor the best. Um, they love the, the music gallery because there's a record store you can go in and play music from. Anything that's highly interactive, I think yeah, youth people, youth tend, tend to like. Um, and my mother enjoyed my mother enjoyed the, uh, the history galleries, in particular the, uh, the, um, 
the, the, the exhibition is called Defending Freedom, Defining Freedom, the Era of Segregation, because she was around here in the United States during the 1960s and when um, the civil rights era was happening and, and had a lot of memories. Um, there's a section devoted to the death of Malcolm, uh, Malcolm X, but also of Martin Luther King, of all the, um, the black power movement, um, the rise of the nation of Islam, all those things that were happening in the 60s. Um, and she remembers that. Um, so people connect with their generation throughout the different um, galleries themselves. And I think she was also proud to see the way the Caribbean is uh, reflected in the museum itself. This museum is very inclusive. It has a very inclusive definition of uh, of the word African-American. It recognizes there have been people, black people, um, immigrating to the United States since the um, 19th century and that they have contributed to the African-American experience as well. Oh, I can't wait to go to this museum. I'm excited about it, so excited about it. And if you have any questions, don't forget, you can call 347-539-5372 or send an email to anikapassionjourney at gmail.com. And I do believe we have another, oh, no, we don't have another question. I'm sorry. I'm just looking at the emails here. Nope, that's it. So I will continue on with my questions. And so it just... I, I, uh, during my show, I, you know, I, I know I have different people listening, and sometimes people may have questions about the actual uh, profession of the person that I'm talking to. So if somebody wants to become a museum curator, what advice do you have for them? Well, I'd follow your passion in terms of what, what area of history and culture or art that you want to study. But ultimately, a curator is an expert in a particular topic. We have 13 curators on staff at the National Museum of African American History and Culture, and each of us have our specializations. So we have a curator of photography. We have a curator. We have curators of art, several curators of art. We have a curator of architecture. We have a curator of music, a curator who specialize in slavery, curators who specialize in military and sports. So whatever your particular passion is for within the discourse of African American history or American history and culture, you study that and you study it um, extensively. You would get your degree in it, your undergraduate and your master's degree in it. And right now, to become a curator, all, you, the master's is the terminal degree. Um, but a number of curators also go on to get the PhD and have the PhD in that area. And you bring that expertise to the museum for them. Um, because the museum needs to collect artifacts and around these topics, they need experts who know what these artifacts are, can do research on them, can interpret them, can help them find more artifacts, you know, can review them when they're being when artifacts are being offered in those areas are being offered to the museum for donation. Um, that is the work that we do, and so it requires you to study those areas um, in depth um, in school. Okay. And speaking of the other curators, have you had conversations with them? What kind of conversations did you have with the other curators? Uh, we talked quite a bit about... Um, uh, each other's exhibitions. Uh, we shared um, trade secrets, so to speak, on what's going well, um, um, how our videos were coming along, and um, um, oftentimes we knew when someone was looking for a particular artifact, and um, sometimes we would come across that because we would be going to visit someone who had a few things that they wanted to donate, but not always in our in our own areas. And so we could go to a family member who was giving out, um, who was um, offering us a cooking tool, for instance, that we need to represent in the food waste section. Um, but they also had um, a family album that um, showed their their father um, you know, taking, you know, participating in World War II. And so we were then able to tell, I was then able to tell this military cure, hey, there are other items that you may need for your gallery in this section as well. We definitely traded best practices in terms of what was working well and what wasn't working well. And the other thing we had to think about was where there were blurs between the stories we were telling, because you know um, there's a, a there's not that just such a fine line between history and culture that the two aren't you know um, aren't really sort of embedded in actually into in within each other. Every cultural tradition uh, has a historical aspect to it, and history often documents um, cultural culture as well. And so we talked about how we were presenting things differently in our galleries, even if sometimes we were presenting the same um, material sometimes. Um, and so, for instance, um, a great, I think a good example of that is um, of the way that we interpret differently 
is, for instance, sometimes people ask me why you don't see any of the racist mem- culinary memorabilia that you see around the country. You know, people of uh, African-Americans eating watermelon or, you know, na- mammy figures, you know, why there isn't right. any of that in the food waste section of cultural expressions. And I tell them it's not there because I curate, I'm a culture curator, I curate from an anthropological, ethnographic lens. That's how I interpret my work. And that means that anything that's in that gallery has to come from within the culture, you know, comes out of, grows up from within and out of the culture. And that's not part of the culture. That's part of um, Ah. people outside of the culture, you know, Um, Mm. putting stereotypes on African Americans. But that material does show up in our history galleries to reflect on how African-Americans were stereotyped, you know, during particular periods of history, and that it plays a role there, you know, to talk about it. So we have our differences in the way we tell stories, even within the museum and the different exhibitions themselves, um, because of the different ways, the different approaches we take coming from the areas that we study. We have another caller, and we're down to our last nine minutes, so I want to definitely get the caller in there. Caller, you, you are on the air. Hi. Hi. I'm really just excited about um, the, the the possibilities with the the museum, and thank you so much, um, Joanne, for your constant um, just uh, commitment to culture and and just maintaining our history um, through the work that you do. I've been following you for for several years, actually. So um, my question is, as a teacher, how can we support um, the work that's being done? You know, my students may not necessarily be able to visit. Um, you know, I'm in I'm in Florida. So how do I how do we um, encourage children to engage with 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 the material? The material that's in the museum itself. Yeah. Well, yes. I would say that our, our our online resources are definitely a place to start. We have um, collection stories where we talk about some of the artifacts that are on display, but mm-hmm. also we also have um, <clears throat> um, summaries of each of the exhibitions themselves. Our education department has done a really good job of um, also um, creating uh, family-friendly tours on, on our website as, as well. And so... Um, we, in museums, we like to talk about um, object-based learning, which is what does an object teach us about history. So getting ch- children to think critically about objects, whatever it is, and how it reflects culture and history is a really good way, I think, to introduce into, into the role the, the museum is playing and what is it doing. Um, people are always su- often surprised when they walk into a museum and say, oh, I have that at home. I never thought it was important. But <laughs> they don't think of um, the culture. They're so embedded in the culture, they don't think about how culture itself is um, um, being produced, you know, all the time. And so being able mm-hmm. to think of ourselves as something special, the things we, we are doing as special, the way we speak as special, the clothes that we choose to wear, you know, where um, um, where those ideas are coming from and what they have to say about us, um, that's a way, I think, to get children to um, appreciate um, themselves, value themselves, value everything that they are doing, value that as an aspect of the culture. Wow. Okay, that that actually is really amazing. Kind of the object-based conversation of of you know that they're producing their own history through their the objects that they choose. That's that's stunning. So, yeah, like what is this object? Where did it come from? Why do you use it? What is its purpose? You know, what is its what is its meaning? And you often the the more and more you dig into it, the the riches mm-hmm. kind of unfold. Oh my gosh, that's so awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much and thank you and Nikkei for 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 having John on. So Thank, thank you, you so much for tuning in. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Right. Have a good night. Thanks. You too. Awesome, incredible questions. I'm I'm loving this show and I can't believe we're down to the last 6 minutes of the show. And so, just to wind down, I just want to go back to you. What is next on your journey? Well, I mean, these exhibitions that are up right now are called permanent exhibitions because they're going to be up for 10 years or more. Uh, But we've got to um, think about replacing things within the... the, You can't often have an object up for that long because of conservation reasons. So our biggest priority now is to find rotations for the items that are on display in the permanent exhibitions and to also help the museum grow its collections. And so I'm focusing on um, Afro-Caribbean-based communities here in the United States and... um, 
and food, uh, food, food items, food-related, cultural, and other cultural-related items from the museum to collect. Um, so we are all currently, all the curators are creating collecting plans. Um, and then to continue to have some robust programming for the museum um, so that they're experiencing um, these topics also through book talks, lectures, films, um, and uh, we continue to dialogue in the conversation uh, that we're having with the public right now. Excellent, excellent. So we are down to the last five minutes. Do we? Ha- do you have any final thoughts? I would say that you know um, it's hard to get museum passes right now um, because of the demand for them. Uh, we've already had a million people pass through the museum, which is amazing. Uh, we passed a million wow, visitor margin. September. Yeah. <laughs> And we're on target to make $3 million by the end of the year, which is pretty substantial, um, a, a huge milestone for us. Um, but I encourage people to not give up and be persistent. You know, whenever those passes, are, we, every month we, opened up another, we open up another month of passes. So in early April, we'll open up tickets for July. In early May, we'll open up tickets for August. And to just be aggressive about getting up early and getting online to um, get the tickets that you need for um, that month if you're able to come that month. We also have walk-up passes Monday through Friday. So we don't have them on the weekends because the museum is too busy on those. But um, you can walk up at 1 p.m. and there may be passes available during the week for you to come in. So if you don't give up, if you're in town and you're um, you think you know you have the time to come in, and also Monday through Fridays at 6:30 in the morning, we offer same-day passes. It's a limited number, but again, if you're aggressive about getting up early and making sure you get online as quickly as possible, there's still a possibility of um, being able to get in and see the museum. And we definitely also encourage people to engage with us um, through other ways. Um, uh, one of the other um, great ways that people um, interact with us is online. Um, they share their photographs of being in the museum. Um, they um, respond to our um, online campaigns. We do uh, campaigns every uh, social media campaigns every month around topics related to African-American history. For Black History Month, we did Black Education. For for March, we're obviously engaging Women's History Month topic. Um, tell us what you want to see. Tell us what you want to hear about at the museum um, and what you want us to make, what, what areas of history and culture you want us to make sure we reflect on because ultimately it's um, your museum. It's the public's museum and we want to be um, responsive to um, to the issues that you're concerned about. Excellent. And how can people find more information about you? Well, I mean, the best way is to Google me, believe it or not. I don't have a website up. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> so they can read plenty of articles online that um, dig into my um, work, my research, my writing. Um, someday I'm going to get my online um, social media presence together. <laughs> um, Facebook, all of those other places, um, that's the best way. Okay, and I will definitely have that information on my social media. And I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. This has been a fascinating conversation. I've been excited for weeks to talk to you, and I'm just so excited that you came on. And I just want to thank you so much for taking the time out and and sharing with us, because this, is, this has really, really been absolutely fantastic. And I want to thank you for the invitation and for the opportunity to speak to your um, your audience. Yes, thank you so much. So hang hang in there with me and um, as I close out the show, and I will be contacting you after the show as well. So hang on with me, okay? Sure. All right. And that is my that was my interview with the amazing Dr. Joanne T. Hippolyte, one of the curators of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. If you have missed any part of this conversation, you can always listen to it on the playback, and I will have that information on my social media at www.facebook.com slash journey into passion with a S. And, of course, you can always go to my website at nikemadison.com. Now mark your calendars because March 26th, Dr. Billy Jones will be back for BJ Speaks. And to learn more about Billy's show and upcoming work and book, please visit his website at billypauljones.com, as well as keeping up with the ladies of K-pop, and their next show should air on March 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can see all this information at blogtalkradio.com slash everydayfolksradio. And my final thought is just simply to honor the history. That's, that's, that's the last two shows. 
honor your history, whether you're African American or any 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 other kind of any other race, just honor your history. And I'm just so glad that we have this amazing, amazing place to go to learn all about the great history of African Americans. We have put so much into this country, and I'm glad that the information is out there for everybody to see. Now, I won't, be be- I won't be here next Saturday, but come back on April 8th and be prepared to, for what promises to be a fun and inspiring interview with none other than Passion Roosevelt. Passion is an acting coach, award-winning playwright, and actress. So make sure you come back on April 8th at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And as always, I wish you great success on your journey towards your passions. Take care. <laughs>